Welcome to Global Minnesota Podcast, connecting, informing, and engaging Minnesotans with the world and exploring important international issues. For a complete list of programs and to join us, visit globalminnesota.org. Good evening, everyone who's joining us here in the center of the country. Good afternoon to our guests from the West Coast and further, and good morning to our friends East in Europe and other parts of the planet. Thanks to the miracle of digital and Zoom technology, we have people joining us tonight from all over the planet. And we are so grateful that you've taken your time to be part of our 2021 foreign policy update that we present in partnership with the University of Minnesota's Humphrey School of Public Affairs. So for many of you, you know that it's our special program each year with our good friend, Tom Hansen, he'll be doing an overview and looking ahead. Um, my name is Mark Ritchie. I have the honor and privilege of serving as president of Global Minnesota. We've been around for about 70 years, connecting Minnesotans to the world and the world to Minnesota. Our mission is advancing international understanding and engagement. Tom Hansen tonight will really help us reach that mission of expanding understanding, but he'll also, I think, get you inspired to get engaged. And so tonight's going to be a real terrific evening. We get to do these programs because we have loyal and generous members. So many of you tonight are members already. Thank you so much and thank you for your long-term support. For those of you who haven't joined yet, tonight's a pretty special night because you can join uh, at a regular membership level and you'll get a free copy of the Great Decisions book. Now, Great Decisions is a national program that looks at very uh, important, pressing, hot issues in the foreign policy arena. There are discussion groups all over the state. Global Minnesota backs them up. It's run out of the national program of the Farm, uh, Foreign Policy Association, now over 100 years old, that association. And so we want to encourage you to be part of that. And in fact, we have some special guests tonight. Um, our friends out in Wyzetta at Folkestone, um, at the uh, big residence there, they have a great decisions group. And Audrey Grote, who uh, helps to organize that, is one of our big supporters and friends. And this is being uh, live fed at Folkestone tonight. So that's a really important new way of extending uh, the reach of Tom's message and of the work of Global Minnesota. So thank you for all of that. And also um, there's Tom, some of Tom's students at Carleton uh, from the School of Environmental Studies. Uh, there are lots of special people who are joining us uh, for this great evening tonight. Our featured speaker, Tom Hansen, is someone that you know is one of the people who links us here very dramatically and very carefully and in a long-term way with our diplomatic community. And here to introduce him is our own uh, diplomat in residence at the Humphrey School of Public Affairs, our partner with, the, with this program this evening, Mary Curtin. Mary, please join me and uh, please introduce our guest, Tom Hansen. Thank you, Mark, and thank you, Global Minnesota, for um, putting on this incredibly timely, uh, even though it's annual event. So on behalf of uh, Dean Laura Bloomberg and our Associate Dean Catherine Squires at the Humphrey School of Public Affairs at the University of Minnesota, we're really pleased to partner once again with Global Minnesota to sponsor this program, and we hope that next year we'll be back together in person. Um, we're meeting tonight 
at a time of uh, momentous events in our country and around the world. And we could not have anyone better than uh, Tom Hansen to talk to us about the outlook uh, for foreign policy for the coming year. And Molly Hayes Berry to engage him in conversation uh, after he speaks to us. Tom, as you know, um, or as you may know if you're new, uh, is a former Foreign Service officer who is currently diplomat in residence at the University of Minnesota Duluth and is engaged across the community and, and across the world uh, on foreign policy issues. Molly Hayes Berry also um, formerly was at the Department of State working on Middle East and counterterrorism issues and currently is in Minnesota working at the intersection, like Global Minnesota, of international and local issues. So without much further ado, um, on behalf of Global Minnesota and the Humphrey School, I'd like to turn it over to Tom Hansen and look forward to his talk and to conversation with Molly afterwards. Thank you. Well, thank you so much, Mary. Uh, and thank you, Mark. Uh, we're all grateful to Global Minnesota and the Humphrey School for uh, supporting this event. And uh, it's, I wish I could be seeing all of you as would ordinarily be the case uh, at the uh, Kaufman Auditorium. But, uh, you know, uh, I think for the past 10 months, uh, since March, we've all been living in a parenthesis. Uh, and so this is this is our little parenthesis here for the for the update, uh, and hopefully next year we'll be back uh, to our usual venue. It's a, as Mary pointed out, it's a uh, poignant time really to be discussing this. Uh, you know, we've been through a lot. Uh, the COVID crisis is still raging as the world uh, tries to grapple with uh, the uh, the virus and its aftermath, just as importantly. And many countries are suffering tremendous social strains, uh, social strains on their democracies. Uh, this is happening in many places. Um, and so uh, it's a, it's a, as I say, a very poignant time to be, to be looking at these issues. I'm gonna go share a screen now because I have a few images to, to project along the way. So um, we, there's a, the 193 countries uh, that uh, make up the world community now, uh, more than ever before, with probably more coming, are having to grapple with a single foe. Um, and I think part of the problem in the global response has been uh, the very fragmentation of the global community, as we all know. Uh, and this is a uh, this is an enemy. This is a, a challenge that. Uh, if anything does, should make us all aware of how we're really in the same boat together uh, in all different nations. Um, th this is a very serious virus, but if you look historically, um, it, is, uh, it, it is not the most deadly, although it's one of the most contagious and in a globalized world, one of the fastest spreading in, in history as, as you know, you know, airplanes and other things we we're in such contact with each other. Spanish flu 100 years ago killed more people than, than the COVID crisis, but in some ways this one is more widespread um, and potentially more long-lasting than the Spanish flu was. Uh, really the, the, the next stage uh, in dealing with this will depend on the pace and the effectiveness 
of vaccines. Uh, as we all know, more and more vaccines are coming online, but uh, it's gonna be important to uh, immunize not just uh, people in our own country or in the West, but globally, because as we've seen already, uh, this is a virus that can mutate quickly. And uh, we could be protected, but suddenly somewhere else in the world, a mutation could arise uh, that would undermine uh, the progress we'd made against the disease. So it's in all of our enlightened interest uh, to be sure that the vaccination goes on on a global basis uh, and, um, and happens as quickly as possible. Now, uh, the economic effects of COVID uh, will play out in the years uh, following this pandemic. Uh, it's already estimated that between 150 million and 200 million people have already lost their jobs uh, because of COVID. This is a scene in India of people lining up at, a, at a, uh, an unemployment uh, center. We've seen pictures like this also in our, in our own country. Uh, I think it's pretty clear that the virus so far is speeding up uh, a already existing trend toward uh, greater inequality um, as, as we see some corporations profiting greatly from this, uh, from our staying home uh, and, you know, buying products that, that have to do with our, our being in, in, in isolation. Um, and of course, a country like China has rebounded much faster uh, because um, it is producing a lot of the PPE, the masks, uh, electronics, many things that, that are being consumed now at a higher rate. So um, it's a very unequal recovery. Uh, it is speeding up a number of trends that were already uh, existing uh, before the virus hit. Um, one question that remains outstanding is to what extent this may uh, strengthen autocrats around the world. Uh, there are many elections coming up in Latin America, in Africa, uh, this, in the next couple of years, um, as well as in the West. And, uh, you know, some populists like Bolsonaro in Brazil and others have actually profited uh, politically from the situation. Now, as we all know, uh, the first sign of the virus arose in China. This, this, is, this is actually the, the uh, advertisement for the wet market, as it's called, in which we detected the first viruses. Um, up, to, up to 99 different species of uh, often wild animals were for sale for, in this market. Um, I think that at some point, mainland China will uh, crack down more on these markets. Um, Singapore and uh, Taiwan have done so uh, long since, uh, you know, sort of in the Chinese cultural realm, and so it ought to happen in China as well. Uh, you know, we were waiting for the permission to have the expert teams go in. Uh, to study exactly how this arose. Um, so China actually um, got a black eye because of the way they handled it at the beginning, sort of dropped the ball, as we all know. But in the aftermath, they regrouped um, quite uh, quickly. And uh, with Xi Jinping, uh, you know, going to Wuhan uh, and using the very centralized form of government that they have in China and what they call the social credit system, which is based on uh, the fact that there are more cell phone users in China than anywhere in the world. And um, this technology was harnessed uh, to do contact tracing and basically to monitor and control the disease. Uh, the Chinese, of course, are um, trumpeting this as a success for their form of governance, um, that, that they are using the technologies in an enlightened way to protect their populations and, of course, uh, 
drawing the contrast to the way uh, some Western countries have handled this. Although I will say it's not just autocracies that have done well. Uh, countries like Taiwan, even Germany to some extent, uh, Scandinavia with the exception of Sweden, um, have done fairly well in keeping the deaths low. But it's quite striking that uh, China has had only about 4,600 deaths total uh, since the crisis broke out, uh, which for a country of 1.4 billion is not uh, so many. We, of course, have passed 355,000. Brazil is in second place, India third, and Mexico fourth place in terms of the number of, um, of infections. We are not number one, however, in the uh, deaths per uh, population. Um, Peru is at the top, and Belgium, surprisingly, is number two for the lethality of the disease. Now, this situation, however, has led to some strains uh, in interstate relations, especially between the US and China, as you know, President Trump has blamed China and uh, has called it the Chinese virus uh, quite regularly. So, um, so we see that, uh, that the political effects of COVID um, are also likely to be somewhat uh, long-lasting. Now, in contrast to China, which, as I say, in the second phase has, uh, has succeeded and is making points globally uh, for the way they handle the crisis, we are in a different situation. Um, I, I think the rest of the world is looking at uh, the numbers. We're, with 4% of the world's population, we have about 20% of the cases. And, uh, you know, our federated decentralized uh, governance, which is a, a, such an asset in most cases. In this particular case, uh, we have struggled uh, for, a, for a unified response. And coming on top of COVID, of course, uh, the world has been watching scenes like this uh, from the Capitol last week. Um, and this is actually uh, having impact on our foreign policy. On, um, on our, what you might call soft power in the world. Uh, the Pew Research Center uh, does frequent polling about uh, how the United States and other countries are viewed around the world. And uh, their September uh, statistics showed us uh, at a record low around the world, very close allies. Uh, the favorability rating in a country like Germany was only 26%, which is lower than it has been. Uh, Canada down to 35%, uh, France 31. So uh, our, and of course these polls were done before uh, the political events um, of the recent weeks. Uh, the polarization in the US is uh, something that is making us sort of preoccupied with ourselves and rightfully so as we try to sort of rebalance ourselves in the midst of all this. And it's having an impact uh, on our, on our uh, reputation overseas. For the, for the time being at least. Um, interestingly, the Pew poll showed that most of our European allies assume that China is already the number one economy in the world. Uh, that's not the case in, in uh, Asia, where in South Korea, 77% think it's still the US, um, Japan, but all through Europe, uh, it's now assumed that China already is the world's leading economy. Now, in traditional GDP terms, it is not yet. But if you take uh, what they call PPE, um, sort of the purchasing power parity, uh, it passed us in 2018. And the World Bank actually uses that measure. Um, and then this shows confidence in world leaders 
And as you can see, the, con the, the, uh, the confidence in, in US leadership is uh, the lowest um, among all these countries in both Asia and Europe, uh, lower than Putin and lower than Xi Jinping. So we have some rebuilding to do, there's no question about it. And as I say, these polls were taken before uh, the political upheavals. Um, already pre-pandemic, there was a sense out there among our, our European allies, at least, that the United States had begun to recede uh, into a more bilateral uh, approach to the world, um, less interest in alliances. And so uh, it was striking that at the Munich Security Con uh, Conference uh, last, just before the lockdown, um, it's the biggest security uh, meeting uh, among Western allies. The, the theme that was chosen by the Europeans themselves was Westlessness. It's kind of a tongue twister, Westlessness in the West. Um, and so there were programs with uh, leaders, as well with Justin Trudeau and Ernest Solberg of, of Norway, um, uh, discussing you know, what the future would hold um, in terms of a US role. And it's true that, uh, as I say, people see us as inter uh, internally distracted. Uh, 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 it reinforces a sense of unpredictability that many foreign observers have. Uh, I hear again and again that uh, whatever the transition between administrations now um, and changes that may be made, there's no way to know what will happen four years from now. Uh, there could be a different administration with different um, priorities. Uh, and so it's hard to plan long-term. And it is true that, that administrations uh, in the last recent years um, have been undoing a lot of the policies, especially in foreign affairs, of their predecessors. Uh, so the Trump administration, um, partly because uh, the Biden administration, sorry, the Obama administration used executive orders to uh, implement most of its foreign policy. Um, you know, for treaties and such things, you need a two-thirds majority in the Senate to, uh, to pass a treaty, and it's been a long time since we've had a two-thirds majority on foreign affairs in the Senate. So things like the Paris Climate Agreement, um, the Iran nuclear deal, uh, were not presented to Congress as treaties. Uh, and they were uh, enacted by executive order. And so they could be very quickly uh, undone by executive order. So I think we can imagine that uh, the Trump Biden administration will do the same to many of the Trump policies of the past four years. And once again, foreign observers see this process going back and forth, back and forth. Um, and are, are becoming increasingly wary. Um, as the, by, as the uh, Trump team is leaving, they are taking a number of steps uh, to lock in some of their uh, policies. Mike Pompeo, Secretary of State, has uh, taken a flurry of decisions in the final days uh, involving Taiwan and uh, easing up on U.S. contacts with Taiwan, Cuba, uh, in terms of sponsorship of terrorism, uh, labeling the Houthis in Yemen a terrorist organization, which uh, will make it hard, harder to get humanitarian supplies to what is the probably the greatest starvation uh, crisis in the world today. And um, also on China, a number of steps uh, beyond the tariffs, uh, you know, labeling any Chinese company that uh, has any contacts with the Chinese military uh, as uh, sanctionable and uh, worthy of being delisted from our stock exchanges. Uh, so a lot of these steps are are increasing a kind of a decoupling between the US and China. And uh, I think probably are intended to make it difficult for the new administration to, to take uh, uh, 
to follow some of the policies it's announced. Uh, you know, if, if, if the Biden team undoes some of these things, they can be branded as weak uh, and as, uh, as, as, as fitting into a narrative uh, about, about democratic administrations. So the new team, as it's coming, there's Tony Blinken, who will be the new Secretary of State, uh, Jake Sullivan, second from the right in the back. Um, they've already announced, you know, what the priorities will be. Um, for President Biden, uh, COVID is number one, getting beyond this crisis and uh, looking at the economic effects, especially. And um, as part of that, he's stressing uh, the need for, this is, this is the, the slogan, a, a foreign policy for the middle class. Um, and so things like infrastructure investment um, and other, even foreign policy, uh, economic policy and thing, uh, things should be, uh, should be aimed at helping the middle class. And one interesting aspect of this, uh, and by the way, here's the team, uh, Tony Blinken at State, uh, Avril Haynes at, uh, at Director of National Intelligence, Jake Sullivan from Minnesota here, National Security Advisor Linda Thomas-Greenfield will be at the UN and John Kerry coming back as UN, uh, as envoy on climate. Um, and of course, uh, we have Lloyd Austin who will become the new Secretary of Defense, the second military man in a row. Uh, Bill Burns, William Burns, uh, career State Department person will become the head of CIA. Uh, he's a real expert on, on foreign policy uh, for decades now. Kurt Campbell has just been announced as sort of the overall uh, Asia envoy. Um, uh, he uh, had the same role under Hillary Clinton when she was Secretary of State. Uh, Victoria Nuland, a uh, familiar face in Europe, uh, will become the Under Secretary of State uh, in the State Department. Um, these are very familiar faces. Uh, it's the return of many of the people from the, uh, from the Obama administration. Um, and uh, that's also being noted by, for, for, for better or worse, um, there'll be a lot of continuity, uh, a lot of experience, but in many ways, the world has changed in the past four years uh, since, these, uh, since this team was in, in the saddle. And so uh, it's gonna take some adjusting. Now, so Jake Sullivan, uh, who uh, grew up in, in Minneapolis, went to Southwest High School. He's the National Security Advisor. His main emphasis is, as I said, um, uh, foreign policy for the middle class. How can, uh, can the US government and its foreign policy do more to help uh, restore the middle class in the US? And one interesting aspect that they are aiming at is going after the, the dark economy out there in the world, what many people call kleptopia, uh, dirty money, uh, all the tax havens out there. Um, there are indications that the Biden team is going to try to work with allies uh, to really get at this. Um, how realistic that is, uh, is hard to say. There's no question that a lot of money is being wasted and going into, into uh, criminal hands in the global economy. So it's going to be interesting to see whether uh, this can be a viable part of a, of a policy for, for, uh, for the middle class. Um, among the Biden priorities, human rights will come back uh, as a more uh, prominent uh, feature of foreign policy, whether it's the demonstrations in Hong Kong, which didn't produce too much of a reaction from the US while they were going on, uh, the situation of the Uyghurs out in uh, Xinjiang. Um, you know, the Chinese say this is their internal uh, matter. They resist any uh, even commentary 
uh, from other countries about the situation in Xinjiang uh, with the Uyghur population. And one reason is that the Xinjiang province is very central to all the Chinese plans for infrastructure across Eurasia that they call the new Silk Road. Um, and so it's very important real estate uh, in China's larger plans. And they wanna, they're going to great lengths to make sure that it's stable from their point of view. Uh, Alexei Navalny, we all know about, um, uh, he was poisoned with Novichok uh, and is now in Germany. There's a good chance that he will not be allowed to return to Russia, but uh, Joe Biden has called, uh, uh, Biden has called um, uh, Putin a thug in this and has indicated that there are gonna be consequences for the Russians for this kind of human rights behavior. Uh, the previous administration has tended not to raise these issues as much. And so we'll see, uh, we'll see how that goes. And you know, the other area where I guess you could call this uh, almost a human rights issue, but it's certainly intrusive is the whole cyber world of cyber where the Russians have uh, intruded on our, in our elections. And this massive hack of FireEye uh, is something that uh, the Biden team has said that they are going to retaliate against. Uh, you know, SolarWinds, which was a subcontractor <clears throat> in, in our, in our uh, secure networks, was hacked. <clears throat> it's interesting that, you know, we do allow a private, private sector to have a major role in our, in our secure networks. Uh, whether this is uh, extra vulnerability, I don't know, but that's how we do things. Uh, so we'll see. It's very hard to determine who, um, who the perpetrator is online. Uh, if something like this happens, it's easy to mimic uh, other actors. So we'll see what the Biden team does on on FireEye. Once again, Russia is the uh, is surmised to be the uh, the perpetrator, and so that's where the reaction will come. In general, uh, relations with Russia will probably be a little testier. Although it's ironic that the Trump administration actually did more uh, to help, for example, Ukraine against Russia than the Obama team did, and so whether. Uh, the Biden team will also uh, be willing to do uh, that sort of thing with more military aid in Ukraine will be interesting to see. Tony Blinken is uh, actually is kind of the main proponent of another uh, potential uh, important part of the, of the Biden foreign policy. Um, he is committed to a league of democracies, the idea that we should uh, team up with the democratic uh, countries of the world, um, pretty much standing up to the autocracies, to Russia and to China on trade, but not only on trade. Um, it's interesting that he's very close to Robert Kagan, who is a neoconservative intellectual, who was a major advisor to um, both John McCain and to Mitt Romney in their presidential runs. And both of those candidates had a League of Democracies as part of their platform already in the past two or previous two um, presidential elections. So Tony Blinken and, um, and Bob Kagan have been teaming up. They've been writing articles together. Um, this is another example of kind of the, I guess what Obama called the blob, but I mean the, the foreign policy establishment kind of coalescing across party lines. Uh, uh, and uh, as I say, the main idea will be this League of Democracies. Now, this is, this is a variant on something that the, that the Trump administration was also uh, proposing. Mike Pompeo uh, in recent months has been calling for, yes, a league or a, uh, some kind of organization of democracies 
aimed specifically at the Chinese Communist Party. Um, and his idea was that, that, that the greatest threat in the world today is the Chinese Communist Party and its form of governance, and therefore all democracies must band together. Uh, I mean, the sort of the subtext of this is that we should try to change uh, China's form of governance, really put the pressure on the CCP. None of our allies were willing to go along with that uh, to that degree. And I think the Biden variation of a League of Democracies will be less ideological than that, um, maybe a little bit more pragmatic. But um, we'll see, you know, how uh, how this goes. Now, the first signs of allied buy-in uh, to this idea, uh, either in Europe or in Asia, on the two sides of Eurasia, have been quite mixed. Because uh, just in recent months, two major trade deals have been signed with China. Uh, uh, first out in Asia, and then uh, by our European allies. Uh, I think, somewhat to the uh, disappointment. Uh, of both the Trump administration and the Biden team. So uh, late last year, uh, the 15 countries out in Asia finally signed, here they are, they, they, they met on Zoom, that's where everything happens now, and, um, and signed something called the Regional Comprehensive Economic Part Partnership. This was in uh, November of 2020. Uh, this is a major, major trade deal that includes a lot of our closest allies in Asia, Japan, uh, South Korea, uh, New Zealand, uh, Vietnam, uh, Australia. The only major power out there, India, decided for the moment not to join. But this will be a huge agreement, uh, counting for about 30% of the world economy. Um, it is a, an ambitious deal. It, it will deepen supply chains. It has a single source provision, which will uh, allow the, the Chinese supply chains through Asia to, uh, to expand rapidly. Um, we are not a part of this, of course, and uh, we, we've been opposed to it. Uh, and on the other side, uh, just earlier this month, the leaders to the EU, the European Union and China, signed a major economic and investment deal. Um, for the Europeans, both uh, Germany, France, and others, China remains a very important market. Uh, and I think the Europeans are uh, still more uh, believing in the possibility that China might change and evolve through trade. Certainly Angela Merkel is someone who believes that, that it's not time to really turn our backs on China, even though the EU has toughened its positions on, on Chinese trade, at least somewhat. So, uh, it seems that, uh, that our allies are not fully on board on the same wavelength um, as, we, as the Biden team now moves toward this kind of a, of a foreign policy. We'll see though, we'll see. They, they certainly agree that uh, Chinese trade practices have to uh, be changed. I think that on human rights, they can go along. But the basic idea that we have in Washington that, that, that China's dominance of Asia might lead it to be a threat globally is not shared so much by the Europeans. They're, they're, Europe is it's not an Asian power, Germany nor France, um, and they they're not so sure that, that China's on the on the road to that kind of global domination. Uh, in, in Asia, obviously, their 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 influence is growing, but uh, so there's a little difference of, of of opinion or analysis across across the uh, across the Atlantic there. And and the Europeans do find themselves drawn now, uh, sort of pulled between the transatlantic world and the Eurasian world uh, and how that will how that will unfold. Now the Chinese are also being very um, 
sort of, even as they criticize some of our more recent policies, especially on Taiwan, they are reaching out uh, to um, offer the possibility of good relations with us too. Uh, Wang Yi there, the foreign minister, gave a speech recently saying there are three areas where right away China looks forward to cooperating with, uh, with, with the Biden administration. And, and those areas are COVID, overcoming COVID, uh, the economic consequences in 2008, China played a major role in the bounce back of the global economy after the uh, finance crisis. And then on climate change, they, they, they claim to be uh, very ready to cooperate with us. So they're, even though they're protesting against some policies in the West, they are holding out the olive branch as well. Uh, Yan Shui Tong, who's one of the um, premier uh, intellectuals uh, in China uh, dealing with foreign affairs, uh, as he looks at this situation, uh, uses the word hiding. He says America's allies are hiding. They, they don't want to be noticed in the sort of competition between the U.S. and China. Yeah, we would probably call that hedging, uh, but, uh, but the Chinese call it hiding. So they, they look out and they see our allies in Asia and, uh, and Europe trying to kind of keep lay low, keep their heads down uh, as the tensions uh, rage between the U.S. and China. Yan Chui Tong is also um, a proponent of a theory that's very widespread in China, and that is that the, the key to the future and the key to um, the U.S.-China relationship over time will be leadership and good governance. That, that, that is going to be the all-decisive factor. And of course, here they, they feel they're playing to their self-perceived strength uh, by, of a kind of centralized country capable of long-term planning. And the, uh, the other part of that is the perception that democracy, especially in the US, uh, is uh, in a problematic state. Uh, now that view on democracy that is very widespread in China is unfortunately uh, being registered by, by the organizations that track democracy in the world. Uh, Freedom House for the past 14 years uh, the number of democracies in the world has been declining. Uh, in their view, they note that the pandemic is leading to all kinds of new uh, controls that are undemocratic in their view, especially on media freedom. And uh, so you can see how the breakdown, uh, the breakdown of countries right now uh, for, for uh, an organization like Freedom House. So democracy, is on the agenda, and um, it is it is true that there are different forms of governance now that are, uh, in a way, striving to outperform uh, each other. And you know, looking at democracy, I've been thinking about this a lot just in, in recent weeks. And I've had foreign friends and observers uh, compliment the fact that the institutions in the U.S. seem to be holding right. The I mean, the Supreme Court. Uh, did the right thing at the right moment. Uh, after much uh, a lot of convulsions, the Congress is moving things forward. Um, the idea being that America's institutions are still strong. But there are other other aspects to democracy, so at least two others. Um, and as I say, when I talk with people in other countries, they often will also cite these other two. Um, one um, is something that Alexis de Tocqueville uh, highlighted in Democracy in America. He his analysis was that it, that it was not the institutions that really made America a stable democracy. 
and thriving democracy. It was rather something he called habits of the heart. Um, how you want to define that further, uh, mores, folkways, uh, sense of moral, uh, shared moral values. But for him, that was the key. That was the fundament. And arguably, that is something that in the United States today uh, is somewhat um, under, under pressure. Um, I, I think it's true that sort of the democratic ethos has not always been um, explained or propagated in schools the way it was maybe uh, previously. Um, so education is the, is the key on this. Uh, I think a basic fairness in a society probably uh, makes people more open to staying with the mores of democracy. Uh, and so that second level is very important. But the third level, quite frankly, is that any political system ultimately is based on power. There is a, there, 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 it comes down to power that stands behind the institutions. And, and of course, that's the military. And uh, as long as we have a military that is uniformly sworn to protect the Constitution, that is not in any way breaking down into factions, um, as happens in many countries, uh, will be fine. And, um, you know, in, in recent times, our military has shown a, a, a strong democratic ethos. I mean, Jim Mattis, uh, the 11 former secretaries of defense, of course, many of whom are civilian, have stood up for, uh, for our institutions in recent, in recent weeks. Um, I know in Germany there's a concern because there's been indications that right-wing groups have been infiltrating their, their military, the Bundeswehr. Uh, so I guess when push comes to shove, this third aspect of democracy is something that cannot be ignored totally. So um, as we look to, uh, as I see the competition with China and keeping our, our uh, middle class strong, um, there is a, a, a competition with China, uh, which is ongoing and new developments in this past year. Uh, it is still the US policy to prevent, as I say, the emergence of pure competitors uh, in either Europe or, or Asia. Um, and so we've been sending our aircraft carriers uh, with increasing frequency into the South China Sea uh, to challenge what China is doing there, both around Taiwan and in, uh, uh, among the islands in the South China Sea. Um, China has been protesting uh, the increasing uh, government contacts uh, between the U.S. and, and Taiwan. Here's uh, Alex Azar, Azar uh, visiting uh, Tsai Ing-wen, the, uh, the president of, of Taiwan recently. Uh, Chinese protested this quite a bit. And as I say, we've been sending aircraft carriers uh, close to Taiwan through the strait. Uh, now China is uh, is warning that uh, you know, this can have consequences. And it's true that the, the missile that I've mentioned before in, in our, our programs um, is developing further. The, the Dongfeng East-West missile, uh, used to be the 21, now it's the 26 version, is increasingly uh, deadly. And it is uh, in the battlefield environment for our aircraft carriers in Asia, quite frankly, uh, would not be um, would not be uh, without problems. And I, I think it's it's universally accepted. We don't really have an adequate defense as yet against these missiles. So that that, that leads to a certain situation in Asia, which uh, is, is concerning. And in addition, uh, just in this past year, China has continued to make breakthroughs uh, in technology. 
And this is emerging as a major point of competition between the US and China. And uh, for example, uh, earlier last year, China landed a probe on the moon in a part of the moon that had not been uh, explored before, the U-2 uh, landing vessel, and collected rocks of a kind that had never been seen before, that no one even knew existed on the moon. Uh, and the Chinese succeeded in bringing it back. That's the first time in 40 years that anybody has made that kind of a landing on the moon. But even more uh, fascinating, uh, just in the last few months, China has announced a major breakthrough in quantum computing. Um, quantum will be very important for uh, military strength in the future. Uh, Vladimir Putin has said whoever controls quantum will rule the world. And a Chinese team working with a computer named uh, Zhang Zhang made a, a major breakthrough. Um, uh, they claim that the computer, Zhang Zhuang, can now do computations 100 trillion times faster than the world's fastest supercomputer. I mean, I, you can't even wrap your mind around that kind of a number. Um, Google had announced, unveiled a, a new supercomputer uh, earlier in the year. Um, this one is 10 billion times faster than that one. And the reason is it's a different kind of computing. Quantum usually relies on uh, super cold chips um, that then are used to, to get into a quantum environment. This computer worked with particles of light. It worked with photons. Uh, first time that's been done uh, actually successfully in computing, which, which allowed these tremendous speeds. This is of increasing concern to Washington, the fact that China is not just copying, uh, it is actually advancing. And, and this is Jian Wei Pen, another success for the man who's called the father of quantum. Um, uh, as he was the, uh, the head of this project, as he's been of so many projects in the past. So um, the legislation that was unveiled last, last year is likely to go forward on uh, trying to um, invest more in these technologies. This is where I think the Trump administration and Biden administration uh, are on the same wavelength. I think Biden wants to uh, invest massively in infrastructure, in scientific research uh, in these very areas. Uh, and he'll probably find some support among the Republicans for this. Um, the legislation is called the Endless Frontier Act and it's based on uh, Vannevar Bush, a, a forgotten figure, very important figure in US science. He was the head of all scientific research during World War II. Um, whether it was the Manhattan Project or uh, radar, all these things. And he wrote a famous book called The Endless Frontier about science. And so uh, our Congress is looking back to Vannevar Bush uh, as uh, kind of an inspiration for what we want to do now, which is to get back to the kind of science we had coming out of World War II where the public and private sector cooperated. Uh, Vannevar Bush is somebody very worth researching. Uh, he's been forgotten in spite of the very important role that he played. Um, and there will be 10 regional technology hubs if this goes through. And uh, I've said in the past that if the Twin Cities could be one, that would be marvelous. Uh, now, the other area in tech, um, and this is a problem between uh, the US and Europe, but also in terms of democracy, uh, what do we do about these large uh, tech companies, which are calling the shots, making enormous profits, um, are host to all kinds of activities on the web, uh, from hate speech to uh, uh, other kinds of activity, uh, both in the US and in Europe, uh, there, there are, there are moves afoot now to try to rein in 
uh, big tech, 48 um, sec, uh, attorney generals around the country um, have instituted a lawsuit um, against the tech companies. Um, on our side, we're looking at using antitrust to try to uh, get this in line. Over in Europe, they're talking about uh, literally trying to break up these companies uh, if they can, um, threatening uh, fines as high as 10% of global revenue for these companies if they if they if they go against pending legislation, uh, a 2021 bill that is being envisaged in Europe. And this this could be a major trade issue between the U.S. Uh, and uh, and Europe. Um, the uh, this um, this legislation, the GDPR, uh, for protecting uh, our information online, is it was instituted in Europe in 2018, and it is now kind of the gold standard worldwide. A lot of people are copying it. And it includes the right to be forgotten, uh, to have control over one's own data, especially in an era of web scraping, where the technology now for really scraping all kinds of information from the web, uh, using it either in government government control, as is the case in China, or for buying and selling products and tracking the consumer. Uh, there, is, there is reform coming um, on this. And um, Angela Merkel, um, in looking at our decision or Twitter's decision and Facebook uh, banning uh, the president, um, has said publicly that, that it would be better if the US would follow what Germany and other Europeans uh, do, and that is to pass laws that restrict hate speech. In other words, define and restrict, restrict hate speech uh, in, in national legislation, rather than leaving it to the social media platforms to devise their own policies uh, and then criticizing them when they fail. So, um, you know, free speech is a obviously sacrosanct in the US and any kind of legislation that would define acceptable speech um, would be highly controversial. Um, in Germany, it involves things like any any reference to Hitler or to anti you know to, to anti-Semitism, that sort of thing um, is defined as hate speech and is punishable under the law. So uh, there's one more trend I want to highlight um, as we uh, kind of come toward the end of, of the presentation here. Um, this is a map of the UN um, geo scheme. It's called. The UN has come up with a, uh, a, a map that, that shows the, the basic regions of the world uh, today. Um, and the, where this is relevant is that there are many signs that the world is breaking down into regions right now. There's uh, more and more talk about uh, a trend of um, de-alignment that is taking place in the world right now. And it, it, it's based on the idea that the United States, for a lot of different reasons, um, is perhaps receding a bit, uh, maybe focusing more on its own issues, uh, taking a more uh, bilateral approach to things, although, as I say, Biden will try to be more multilateral. Um, and China, as it's rising, is nowhere near being in a position to, to do what we have done, which is basically to assure what they call the global commons. You know, with our Navy, uh, we keep the, the sea lanes open for trade. Um, you know, we uh, Americans have invested heavily in in policies that have helped the whole world, really, uh, uh, in, in, in being, I guess you could say, the, the hegemon of our era 
Um, and it could well be that we're in a kind of a hegemonic transition right now, uh, as another, another, power, another part of the world, Asia, is rising. But there is certainly going to be a gap. Uh, as I say, China is not ready to take these, these responsibilities on. It, too, is very focused on its own development. So um, in this situation, there are more and more signs of regional actors, uh, regional hegemons, uh, beginning to sort of take their own approach to things. Um, it's a slowly developing trend, but it, it's, it's being perceived widely now as underway. Uh, if you just take a country like Turkey, for example, which is a major NATO ally, but in the recent years under Erdogan, they have gotten themselves in a very, very independent way, involved in all kinds of uh, conflicts in their region, from Libya to the Eastern Mediterranean now over, uh, over resources, Syria, of course, um, they've been in Afghanistan on our side and Nagorno-Karabakh uh, backing Azerbaijan was a major initiative for the Turks. So as always, they're the canary in the coal mine um, and what Turkey is doing is to many people uh, seen as uh, very indicative of the trend uh, that's out there now. I would include Germany in this trend. Germany has been standing up for its, uh, for its uh, own interests uh, for some time now, and it's not that they're de-aligning from NATO, but in, in areas that they perceive to be in their national interest, they are standing up to the U.S. Uh, and the case in point right now is Nord Stream 2, which is uh, a major pipeline coming out of uh, Russia. Um, the United States and Eastern Europe are against this. Uh, they don't want Europe dependent on, on Russia, but the Germans, uh, especially Angela Merkel, claim to see no alternative, and they're, they're hell-bent to complete this. In fact, on the eve of Biden taking office, uh, the Germans have announced uh, letting of contracts to complete uh, Nord Stream 2, maybe by late spring. Um, we are telling them which they should not look to Russia, look to us for natural gas. Uh, you know, our, our shale mining is producing a lot of LNG. Uh, we have ports uh, along the Atlantic from which we could ship uh, all kinds of LNG to Germany. Um, but the Germans do not see this as a reliable source and they've just watched how we have sanctioned them on a number of areas. They, they, they would be worried that if they got too dependent on our uh, natural gas that we at some point could sanction them on that. So, um, you know, kind of poised between the transatlantic and Eurasia, in this case, Germany is choosing Eurasia. They are choosing to go forward with Nord Stream 2. Another example of kind of de-alignment uh, we've all been following is Brexit. Um, the English are seemingly wanting to become a lightly re regulated city-state off of uh, Eurasia, just like Singapore. It's almost like the Singapore model for England. Um, because upon leaving the European Union and de-aligning from the EU, there's a very strong risk that Scotland will leave. This is Nicola Sturgeon, who is crystal clear about wanting to have a referendum um, before too long uh, on independence. And even Ireland now, the uh, Irish Republic and Northern Ireland, which have been at loggerheads, uh, um, have an incentive now, potential incentive, to want to maybe join together um, and, and be in the EU. Uh, so the whole Northern Ireland situation is not there yet. I mean, there's still a lot of opposition in the North. But uh, so Britain is definitely going through a kind of a, a de-alignment right now. And, We'll try to set up new relationships going forward. Africa is a, a good example of <clears throat> a continent that's coming together on a regional basis. Uh, 
a the free trade area that was signed last year uh, by 54 of the 55 countries is, is being ratified. It's going to take a lot to actually implement this trade area, but, um, but it's happening. But within Africa, uh, there are still a lot of regional uh, issues, and, and one of the most serious right now uh, has to do with Ethiopia, which is uh, embroiled now, uh, tragically, in a in an internal dispute with the Tigray people, but this is risks spilling over towards Sudan. And, um, and very importantly, uh, Ethiopia is pulling troops out of Somalia. Uh, you know, they need the troops at home now. So the kind of peacekeeping force that had been in Somalia is being, is being cut back. And of course the Trump administration has been doing the same thing. So there's a risk to Somalia actually uh, in this situation, uh, if there's sort of less international support uh, in terms of security in Somalia. And then not to mention the Ethiopian Renaissance Dam, which uh, is a huge problem for Egypt and could eventually lead to one of the first water conflicts. Uh, so once again, these are all regional issues that are festering. Quite frankly, we are not present very much in any of them. Um, and uh, these are just going forward. Uh, the Middle East, to my mind, is becoming more and more of a a venue for regional, strong regional actors, strong regional hegemons, as uh, Iran, Saudi Arabia, Israel, all vie for position, uh, for influence in the Middle East. And they're teaming up with each other. Now, the Trump administration facilitated the Abraham Accords, which uh, led uh, four Arab countries now to recognize Israel. Uh, this can have some positive benefit. But in the process uh, of getting Morocco to recognize, uh, we very abruptly recognized Morocco's control over west of the Western Sahara, which has been a flashpoint for decades, the Polisario movement there, and um, who are supported by Algeria. So there's a danger of a regional conflict uh, erupting uh, in, that, in that area, potentially involving Algeria and Morocco. Uh, so this kind of a regional issue is one more thing that the Biden team will have on there. Um, on their plate. Um, now, India is, once again, uh, you know, we're, we're trying to get closer to India, but the Modi government, uh, Hindu nationalist, has uh, basically annexed Kashmir. This is a regional conflict between India and Pakistan. Um, nothing's happened yet, but this is a simmering crisis that, 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 that could explode. Um, you know, both countries have nuclear weapons. Um, and in the midst of the tensions between China and India have flared up in the high, high Himalayas. Uh, here are the two troops together, but there have been clashes along the, along the frontier. So once again, we are not particularly involved in this. This is happening in the heart of Eurasia uh, among the, the, the strong powers of that region. And the regional grouping that of course we are most concerned about um, is once again uh, in Eurasia. Uh, and that is the, the kind of close relations and getting closer between China and Russia, and now increasingly to include Iran. Uh, China is about to sign a major uh, trade and uh, security agreement with, with Iran. And Zbigniew Brzezinski, the former national security advisor, always said that the one thing that could put America on the back foot would be if we ever sort of pushed these three countries together, uh, China, Russia, and, uh, and Iran. So there's a lot going on um, regionally and in terms of great power relations. 
But if we really take a step back and look at the, the world as it is, it's these other threats, it's the global threats that we all share that really ought to be the focus. Um, and the, the Obama team has said it's going to um, make climate a, a major part of its, uh, of its foreign policy. John Kerry, there he is with Tony Blinken uh, and uh, Jake Sullivan, will take the lead uh, as our sort of climate czar. Uh, it'll be interesting to see how the relations, I mean, he'll, he'll have a lot of uh, probably independent responsibility. And so how that will jive with the Secretary of State and the National Security Advisor uh, will be interesting to see, although there is every indication that it's a fairly tight, tightly knit team. Climate is one area where there actually have been some very positive steps recently. We could well have a green, what they call a green recovery um, coming out of this if, if, uh, if governments and companies will prioritize that. Uh, there's more and more indication that green technology is actually quite cost efficient. The, the, you know, the state of Texas is actually investing quite heavily in, in wind. Um, you know, the ultimate oil state is actually uh, one of the fastest now in going toward wind technology, uh, battery technologies making advances. Um, many countries are pledging uh, by 2050 or 2060 to bring down their emissions um, to, uh, to, to neutral, if possible. Uh, the, uh, the Chinese have promised by 2060. All this will be discussed in November at COP26, the follow on to the UN Climate Conference. Um, many corporations, even investment firms, are at least talking a good game about wanting to uh, to go more green and seeing it as a actually an investment opportunity. So um, I'm heartened by some progress that's being made in in this area, and I'm hoping that even on on health that sort of thing, there can be some progress, uh, a more multilateral approach going forward. So um, we just have to hope that we come out of the COVID crisis. Uh, in that way. Um, and um, part of this will require, uh, at least on the US side, um, upping our game on diplomacy. And here I'm, I'm also somewhat optimistic. Uh, the cuts uh, that Rex Tillerson wanted to make as Secretary of State uh, were rebuffed by the Senate on a bipartisan basis. Republicans also realize that we need to have a diplomacy, especially because China is all over the map. Uh, there is a diplomacy gap, if you will, between the U.S. and China. Uh, and that's a pretty strong argument for doing more uh, and providing more funds for the State Department. This, uh, there are three major studies out about how to reform the State Department. The, the best one to look, out, look at is the Council on Foreign Relations um, uh, study, which was co-authored by John Finer, uh, who has just come in now as Deputy National Security Advisor under uh, Jake Sullivan. So his ideas um, uh, as were outlined in this study, uh, may be a part of the reform of the State Department. We certainly have to hope that, um, and that and the State Department once again becomes a place where young Americans uh, want to work and feel they can work. And then finally, you know, getting our act back uh, on track here at home will be essential to get back to in Washington um, to a a national governance that we can all be proud of. And um, I think that's gonna be a major priority now going forward. Uh, if it, if it uh, distracts us a bit from our foreign policy, well, so be it. Because uh, our, our strength as a nation um, 
really lies in, in, in our, our ability to serve as a model for others and um, to, uh, to have good governance uh, at home. So um, I'm hopeful on, in a lot of these areas. And on that note, I will uh, conclude my remarks and we'll look forward to your questions. Thank you so much. Okay, I think, uh, Mark, were you going to say a few words first before we kick this off? Well, I, th I think we're moving into our time zone, so I'm just going to hand this over to Molly to jump into those questions. All right, thank you, Mark. Thank you, Mary. Thank you, Tom. Um, as usual, uh, the audience tonight has given me so much to work with in terms of questions. <laughs> Great. Uh, there's so much to cover. Um, there are a few themes that have come out of this, and then I have a few questions of my own in here too. Um, but uh, there's a cluster of questions around the State Department and kind of what it, mean, what it means to revitalize the State Department. Um, so a, a question of mine uh, is you know, the, the appointment of Ambassador Bill Burns as CIA director. So he previously served as Deputy Secretary of State, uh, so was the senior most career diplomat in the, in the Foreign Service. Um, so what, what does that mean in terms of, um, is there going to be kind of a perception of a conflation of diplomacy and intelligence? Um, or, you know, kind of what, what does that look like or what does that mean for the State Department? Um, and then concretely, how, uh, what would you say that the Biden administration's best bet would be to revitalize the State Department given, um, you know, not only, uh, you know, just kind of the fluctuations in funding, um, that make it uh, you know, difficult to have a consistent class of new officers coming in, but also the attrition rate uh, for people who have, who maybe reached the mid-level and then for a variety of reasons, some related to um, the, the, uh, the Trump administration, uh, you know, chose to leave career service. Um, so is there, could there be a route back for people who are in that middle space as well, in addition to the junior officers? Right, well, yeah, I mean, it's, uh, it's going to be a vast undertaking because the State Department uh, for quite a while now has been um, uh, has been in, in trouble. It really started during the Clinton administration during re reinventing government when funding, uh, Bill Burns makes a, a big point of this when he talks about the State Department. There was a 50% cut in the foreign affairs budget under Bill Clinton. So it's been both parties. Um, and so you know, we'd won the Cold War, right? So why have a big State Department. So uh, right in the aftermath with 9-11, suddenly there were all these new tasks, uh, nation building in Iraq and Afghanistan. And a lot of Foreign Service positions and Foreign Service officers were uh, sort of segued over to provincial reconstruction teams. Um, and so the State Department has never really rebalanced from that. Um, and then just in the, in, the, in the most recent administration, simply cutbacks uh, have taken place. And um, uh, and a lot of senior people have left, uh, a shocking number of senior people have left, in addition to which uh, there's been a growing trend over the decades for more and more outside political appointments. Uh, you know, that's always been the case with ambassadors, maybe a third have been outside uh, campaign donors and such. But now it's all through the State Department. Pretty much 100% of the senior positions uh, right now are occupied by non-professional um, 
non-professional uh, outside appointees. So there's a question of funding, but there's also the question of whether you're going to have a professional foreign service. You'll always have a State Department, always have a foreign policy, but will you have a professional service? Um, and should you have a professional service? And I, and I think it's pretty clear we should because we need those kind of contacts, that kind of experience in a increasingly complicated world where we are, you know, one player now uh, on, a, on, a, on a vast chessboard of, of strengthening countries. So I think the areas I get to focus on, of course, funding, number one. Um, number two, there's a lack of senior uh, people. A lot of them have left. And you're going to have to find a way to bring more senior people in. Uh, also for mentoring, I think that they'll try to find ways to bring former Foreign Service officers, uh, especially recently retired, to have some kind, of, some kind of a reserve corps that could come in on a uh, sort of an ad hoc basis, but still significantly, to, um, to fill the gap as it builds up from, from below. Um, hopefully there'll be larger classes coming in. And another thing that will be important will be training. Um, the military spends a lot on training its officers. It does a very good job. Uh, the State Department, not so much, especially in recent decades. And so all of these reform proposals um, want to restructure state to allow for, for more training, uh, creating a more professional uh, foreign service. So um, it'll be coming from multi-fronts. I think the fact that, I, I don't think Bill Burns, he'll be informally involved, but he'll have his hands full over at, uh, over at CIA. I don't think that uh, this means any kind of a, an intelligence, First of all, he's not an intelligence person. He's, he's, a, he's totally a Foreign Service officer. And Tony Blinken was also Deputy Secretary of State. Um, so, uh, and John Finer, the guy who wrote that, uh, the, the, the best study was the head of policy planning. So there are plenty of people in there. And, and Joe Biden dealt with these issues forever when he was on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. So they, they've got a, a lot of people who know about this. So it's a question of getting Congress to go along. And I'm somewhat optimistic that the Republicans will be willing. And, one of the strongest advocates for this is the U.S. military. Always has been. They 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 want more funding for the State Department. I just hope you know, as as I work with college students and I see, you know, they kind of wonder whether this is a, a career. And in fact, in in a one year span uh, from 2017-2018, the number of people applying for the Foreign Service exam went from 23,000 to 8,000, uh, a huge dip. And so to try to get um, the State Department back on uh, as, a, as a place that people want to gravitate to, the best people want to go to. Um, I'm somewhat optimistic. Now, this was tried again uh, before when Obama and Hillary Clinton uh, were in, in 2008 to 2010. They, they began a major ramping up of the State Department, but the 2010 midterms elections and the sequester put an end to that. And so for the past 10 years, it's been downhill. Thank you. Um, so, so kind of continuing with this, theme of, you know, continuity and change. Um, you mentioned uh, this, this concern that some of our allies uh, have about, you know, will the United States be able, will the US government be able to actually keep its word given the four year election cycle? Um, and so I guess a, a, a question for you is about the areas in which there has been continuity and what that means. Um, and so specifically, I'm talking about the, our engagement with Iraq and Afghanistan. Um, so that have spanned multiple administrations and you know, politicians have said, we're gonna end it. We're gonna, we're gonna extract right. ourselves from these situations. And then 20 years later, here we are. Um, so if you could comment on US engagement with Iraq and Afghanistan and 
you know, why there has been that continuity of engagement across administrations and, you know, is there potential to, to shift that? Yeah, well, it's, um, you know, it was a fairly bipartisan uh, uh, vote and support uh, initially for getting, uh, getting us into Iraq and Afghanistan. Um, actually, Donald Trump got a lot of votes uh, by criticizing uh, members of both parties for having gotten us into those wars. And of course, he's talked about getting us out um, and has, has drawn down uh, somewhat, but we're still there. We're still, especially in Afghanistan, we're still there. Uh, I don't know, America does not do a very good job of ending wars. Uh, I think, you know, our, our sort of paradigm from World War II. It's, it's very diplomatically put, Tom. <laughs> thank you. Um, you know, you do. And you demand after 18, I mean, I have students who weren't born uh, when we went into uh, Afghanistan. So, um, you know, World War II, unconditional surrender has been the paradigm, right? Um, and so the idea of, you know, war and diplomacy as being um, on a continuum uh, has, has it, we, we haven't dealt with it well. And, and once you're in, it's, it's, uh, it's politically damaging to sort of admit defeat. There's always the chance that it'll turn around, right? There's always the light at the end of the tunnel. We just do a little more. If we have a surge here or a surge there. Now, interestingly, when uh, President Obama uh, decided on a surge in Afghanistan when he first came in, Biden opposed that. He was against the surge. And so, um, uh, I, I think the Biden administration will be looking for ways to, uh, to to further ratchet back. But I mean, you know, Iraq is in a very unstable place right now with a lot of Iranian influence. And um, you know, we still have interests in both countries. Uh, and, and so whether, you know, retaining a kind of a small presence of advisors uh, is meaningful or not, uh, it, it's hard to say. Um, there's a chance that the, that the Biden administration might even ramp up a bit again. I, I, I wouldn't rule that out. Uh, they, they don't seem to have, I mean, they didn't make promises along this line, these lines the way Trump did, uh, of getting us out right away. And uh, there's one area, I know that the, uh, the I, I, I from a Turkish friend, I understand that the Turks are quite worried that the Biden people might get more involved um, on the Kurd Kurdish issue and actually send troops in uh, to the Kurdish regions of Syria, perhaps. Um, you know, Biden was on record earlier of uh, sort of favoring dividing Iraq into three states, one of them being Kurdish. Uh, so I, I think that the Turks feel that there might be actually more intervention in the region by this administration than by the previous one. Mm -hmm. So uh, I don't know, this is, it's endless wars and um, it becomes a domestic issue and nobody wants to take, take the final step of getting us out. Uh, so we'll see. Thank you. Uh, so you mentioned Turkey and Turkey's concerns uh, you know, regionally, um, could you talk a bit more about the, kind of the Turkish Qatari alliance um, versus the Saudi Arabia UAE alliance, and kind of how? I, I, I mean, we could talk about that all day. Um, so, if you're if you're yes. able to just kind of briefly say, I guess, what the what the impact of the, those regional alliances could be um, for people who are caught in the middle of it, uh, like for example, yes. you know, countries in the Horn of Africa. So uh, this is once again, this idea of regional hegemons and, and, and the, the, the Middle East is incredibly complicated that way. You've got different branches of Islam. So you've got, um, um, you've got obviously the Shiite uh, brand in, in, in Iran. 
of what the Saudis represent and uh, Qatar and UAE is a kind of a conservative, conservative uh, monarchic um, form of governance within Islam uh, with Saudi Arabia uh, you know, controlling the holy sites. And when you come to Turkey, uh, you've got um, a, a brand of Islam that, that is uh, saying that it wants to you know, move toward democracy and where the Muslim Brotherhood is actually seen as a model for how all countries should, Muslim countries should organize themselves. This is a great threat to the Saudi brand of, of Islamic governance. And so that puts the Turks and the Saudis especially at loggerheads. Um, you know, they differed on the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt, uh, whether to support them or not. Um, Erdogan welcomed uh, Morsi as an ally, whereas the Saudis uh, tried to undermine him. Uh, so, and once again, and, and Turkey, never forget, for centuries uh, uh, had control of the holy sites of Islam uh, and um, in, in, uh, in, in, in Saudi Arabia. And so Erdogan still has some pretension to, to, to represent Islam. Uh, and this, again, is, is, is threatening to the Saudis. And to add to that, that we're dealing not just with religious, but with ethnic differences. The, the Iranians are Indo-European. Uh, the Turks are Turkic. Um, and the Saudis, Qatar, the other Gulf states are Arab. And there's deep underlying tensions uh, among these three groups. So it's a, I mean, there's a, there's a reason why the Middle East has been such a conundrum. Um, and then of course you had Israel into the mix. Uh, and um, I find it fascinating now that the Arab countries are, are, are getting close to Israel um, in the face of a common enemy. Um, in, in Iran. Uh, and as I said, the, the Arabs are also quite angry with Turkey. Now, Turkey has supported Qatar, um, and, uh, and that has made the Saudis, that's one reason the Saudis have been so angry at Qatar. Uh, and so, yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a, a conundrum for US policy. Uh, the Trump administration made it all very simple by giving very strong support to Israel in all cases, and a very strong opposition to Iran in all cases. And so uh, whether the Biden team can try to get back into the Iran nuclear deal, as they said, they've tried to do without alienating uh, our close allies, Israel and Saudi Arabia. I think on the Iran deal, we'll, we will offer the Iranians that if they scale back their uh, enrichment and such things to the level of the agreement, we will ease sanctions. There then will be follow-on negotiations on, on, on the sunset clause in the agreement, maybe changing that maybe even on missiles. And then a third step that I don't quite understand yet, a regional conference. Now, to my mind, that means you try to draw in Saudis, Israelis. I mean, they, they bring together regional actors on the Iranian issue. I mean, I, I guess it, it sounds like a 19th century grand conference, uh, you know, like the Berlin conference or something, but that is the stated intent. And um, Jake Sullivan is one of the main architects of this. He, he negotiated uh, in a major way, the, the first Iran deal. But, um, you know, the Israelis, uh, the Netanyahu government has announced that they plan to try to block this. Uh, and uh, here's an example of regionalization. Our, they're our allies, but they are being unabashed about their regional interests um, regarding, uh, and, and they will find allies among the Republicans in Congress uh, in trying to do that. Mm -hmm. um, so we have a question from one of the Humphrey International Fellows. Um, Along these lines, um, you know, given the different uh, you know, decisions that the Trump administration made in engaging with the government of Israel and trying to you know, facilitate um, you know, 
more partnerships between Israel and different Middle East partners. Um, what do you think the Biden administration is going to do about the situation in Western Sahara? Um, and I was delighted that there was a question about this and that you mentioned it because I actually served as the department's desk officer for Morocco and Western Sahara during the Arab Spring. Um, and it's, it was always a battle to get people to actually think, you know, pay attention to what was going on in Western Sahara, even though it was sometimes really important. Um, so yeah. if you could comment on that and the impact it could have. Yeah, I mean, that was a, uh, as I said, that was the sweetener to get the Moroccans to, uh, to recognize Israel. And so uh, I don't think it was very much thought through. Uh, it was a major change of our position. Um, you know, the UN has been trying to negotiate this situation. It's been on kind of on the, on the back burner for a long time. I mean, the, the region is about 75% under Moroccan control now. Um, it's a non-self-governing territory is what it's called. Uh, it's, it's claimed by both Morocco and the, um, the Palisario. As I said, I, they've been around a long time. Um, and so, you know, some of our allies, the French, for example, support the Moroccan position, apparently. Um, and so there's been some division among the West. Uh, so, uh, you know, up until now, we, we have supported the UN. Um, uh, they, they have sponsored talks uh, with, the, with the Palisario and, and Morocco. So since December 10th now, all that is in a cocktail. Um, I could imagine the Biden team, I mean, I, I don't see how they'd be able to undo this really since it was promised. Uh, I mean, if they if they shifted our position, would Morocco then de-recognize Israel as a result? Um, I, I kind of doubt that. So there are a lot of things that the Trump team did, but I, I don't think that the Biden people will move the embassy back to Tel Aviv, for example. I, I don't think that's gonna happen. I, I doubt if they'll change the position on the Golan Heights. On settlements, they may be, uh, not as accommodating uh, as the Trump team was. Um, so, uh, and, and certainly on the Palestinian issue, uh, I think the Biden team will uh, become more supportive of the Palestinians, again, at least uh, financially and in the UN through UNRWA, uh, because the, you know, the Trump team basically cut the Palestinians off. Um, this is a major, one of, one of the many points of contention with our European allies uh, who want us to go back into the, into the Iran deal. They want us to support Palestinians more again. Um, so, uh, so we'll see, but the Western Sahara, I don't know, that's, it's, as I said before, you, you could imagine this deteriorating into a regional conflict uh, very easily. So that it's gonna be a big problem for the Biden team. Thank you. Um, so I'm gonna take another question from a Humphrey International Fellow. Uh, this is from Maria Hernandez. And it's given uh, Biden's experience in engaging with Latin America, um, do you think there will be increased attention um, on the region and in particular on Venezuela? But how do you think the Biden administration will approach Venezuela? I, I think there's, there, there's going to be increased attention paid to Latin America and to Africa, both. Uh, all the signs are that. I mean, I mean and, and this is, I mean, it's important because this is our region. I mean, in a world that is becoming more regional, where you're seeing all kinds of regional groupings. I mean, we, we should be looking at our region of the Americas um, as a priority, really, for economic uh, interaction, infrastructure, all kinds of things. And in, in an ideal world, that's what we will be doing. Uh, so I think the Biden people will be more open to that idea. I think on Venezuela, they will not be as, um, I mean, the Trump 
team really was flirting with the regime change at one point uh, with the Maduro government. Um, in many ways, I think it strengthened Maduro, if anything. Uh, now, as, as the Biden team is coming in, Maduro is announcing some kind of economic reforms, uh, kind of opening up the economy a little bit. Um, so whether there'll be any point of contact uh, there, I, as I said, I, I think the Biden team will be somewhat less confrontational than, um, than the Trump team, but it will certainly keep raising the human rights issue uh, very much. Um, you know, on Mexico, uh, ironically, there, there were good relations between AMLO, uh, Lopez Obrador, and uh, Trump. Uh, nobody could have predicted that. A kind of a left-wing Mexican leader would feel comfortable with a more conservative American president. Uh, so, you know, how that will go with the Biden team, I think that you know, Biden will emphasize human rights um, uh, on Mexico and, and the whole idea of cooperation uh, against the drug lords is up in the air um, ever since the extradition now of the, the former defense minister of Mexico uh, back to Mexico. And, and the Mexicans have changed some of the laws or procedures on, on cooperation with the US in the aftermath. So that'll have to be sorted out. Um, but the other aspect is this, is, is, and as I said, then this applies globally, but, but to Latin America where a number of elections are coming up. Um, uh, democracy is gonna be challenged. In, in the next year or two uh, in Latin America. And I mean, we've seen Chile, which had been the model of democracy in the whole region, struggling recently. And um, so whether populist leaders uh, you know, in Latin America uh, are able to profit from the economic dislocation post COVID, uh, uh, th that'll be a key part of, of the relationship as well. Um, so in Africa, uh, the, you know, Obama had a year of Africa during his tenure, uh, wanted to make it a priority. It didn't go anywhere, partly because our private sector would not engage. I mean, we can't force them to get involved. Uh, so uh, other countries, I mean, the Turks even, and the Japanese, the, yes, the Chinese, definitely Europeans are engaging much more in Africa now. And so I think that, that the Biden team will try to find a way to, um, to do that as well. So, um, you know, we've been, I mean, you can see it in terms of our own interest. You can see it in terms of competition with the Chinese. There are many ways you can see it. Uh, but when it comes to Latin America, it's our region. It ought to be a priority for us, definitely. Thank you. Um, we're, we are getting close to the end of time. So I, I will just, so the, the last two, um, a number of audience members tonight um, had questions about China, and U.S. engagement with China, and then what you know what China is doing in its own region, um, and then just yeah, just to preview, uh, I guess the final question will be around American values and what does it mean to to be supportive of democracy and have that be a guiding value in foreign policy. Um, so with China, um, so a question uh, was, you know, given the U.S. interconnectedness with China in terms of U.S. economy in particular. Um, what happens when that bond between the United States government and the Chinese government frays? Well, uh, it, um, it has an immediate potential economic impact for sure. Uh, you know, there, there, there have been Chinese trade practices that, that, uh, that probably had to be called into question at some point um, on, you know, subsidies for their companies, uh, uh, theft of intellectual property and that kind of thing really has been going on. And uh, I know the Biden team feels that the better approach 
to that would have been to work closely with our allies to have a kind of a common approach to China on those issues, because our, our European allies also are um, are irritated by by some of these things. Uh, so I think the Biden team will try to get back to that um, to that approach if they can. Um, I really believe that that that. The, uh, the major sticking point, though, is on the technology side. The, the, the feeling in Washington, D.C. That, that China really is starting to steal a march on us on, on the most advanced tech and that this is a national security issue. Um, and I think that that kind of infuses the political relationship uh, with more sort of mistrust and misunderstanding than otherwise would, in, would have been the case. Now, the, uh, the business community in the U.S. has always been a strong advocate of close relations with China. And there's been a period uh, uh, during the Trump administration where opinions seemed to shift even among our large corporations in a kind of a more anti-Chinese direction. But if you look what's happening right now as China emerges ahead of everyone else and where the big market opportunities are frankly in Asia and in China right now, our private sector is starting to gravitate back. Um, and that includes the investment community as China is sort of opening up its investment laws now. Um, Chinese stocks. Uh, so I, you know, I, I think the relationship is so deeply connected. It's not like the Cold War with Russia, where there was almost no economic contact. Um, and I think a lot of people are seeing that our tariffs have hurt us um, in, in, in many ways, to farmers and everyone else. I mean, if it were for the sub subsidies uh, that the taxpayers have funded, um, the, our farm economy would have been in worse shape even than it is. So I think that the, there are still a lot of drivers uh, that will keep the relationship from going totally off the rails and might even lead to um, a, a less tense economic interaction uh, going forward. I, you know, I, I really hope that when it comes to students and all the exchanges that that gets back on track. Um, uh, you know, the, 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 this idea that everyone who comes over and every Chinese company is somehow a stalking horse for the Chinese military, which is what we're saying now. We're trying to delist companies from our stock exchange on that basis and, and sanction companies who deal with them. Um, I mean, that, yes, okay, I, I guess that's true, but how many of our corporations have military contacts also? And, uh, you know, how, how broadly do you define that? So um, I think that the Trump administration took some, some um, uh, very uh, aggressive policies in these areas, and um, I think they'll be ratcheted back a bit, but I think that uh, the Republicans in some cases may accuse the administration of weakness if they do try to ratchet back too much. So it's going to be a tough, a tough balance to strike. Um, I think that the bottom line, though, is that China is emerging and it's, uh, it's going to be very hard for us uh, to, to prevent this fully. And we have to find a way to work with the Chinese on a, on a whole range of issues. Um, and I'm, I think that's where it's going to head ultimately especially on these shared global threats. We have to cooperate with, with China on those. Thank and you're you. asking about democracy, right? That was the other one? Yeah, so the, the last one is really, um, I, get, I guess it's, there are you know, a, a number of questions around, you know, what does uh, you know, prioritizing you know, democratic governance in US foreign policy, what does that mean? Um, you know, and is it, is it possible for, uh, you know, Democratic governance to be, you know, a guiding principle of U.S. foreign policy, given all the different power dynamics that you have outlined over the course of your presentation. Um, I guess the broader question is, um, you know, what do you see are the values that are driving actual U.S. foreign policy? Um, you know, what are the undergirding values of U.S. foreign policy? 
um, at this moment in time, both in general and then with regard to how the Biden administration will approach it? Well, for, on, to the, on the first part, um, in terms of kind of the guiding principles and how, how realistic this is, I mean, a lot of commentators are, are, are pointing out that in, in some ways right now what's happening in, in the U.S. Uh, is sort of devaluing our currency <laughs> when it comes to uh, to promoting democracy. I mean, it's like, you know, physician heal thyself, right? And, and, and obviously a lot of autocratic companies are, are countries are, are happy to see what's happening here. Uh, so, and also using democracy as a cudgel uh, to um, push uh, kind of geopolitically or in terms of, uh, of um, I mean, delegitimizing foreign governments is also problematic. I think our allies are unlikely to go that far. I think that they're willing to cooperate and to come up with joint positions. The EU has indicated that they're willing to do that, and they're, they're open to a meeting of, of democracies. That's okay. But their agenda is clearly much more restricted. Um, so we'll see where this goes. As I say, it's been in the air for a long time uh, in both parties, and now we're going to see how realistic it is. Finally, though, what are our real driving values and our driving, um, I think it's for I mean, economic profit, you know, to, to allow our corporations to profit. And, and I think that what I cited before, this geopolitical idea of wanting to prevent uh, hegemons, uh, we would call peer competitors, uh, in Eurasia is a, I, I recently read a CRS report, Congressional Research Service to Congress, which underscored this once again and said, this is not often talked about in the U.S. public debate, but in fact, this has been our basic orientation since World War II. Where, where we saw what happened when Germany and Japan became dominant in their regions. So frankly, that's a driver too. That, that is definitely a driver uh, in our policy. Thank you again, Tom. And of course, Molly and Mary, thank you for your partnership and for your contributions and for opening our brains to think about. There were so many more questions in the chat and so we know this is a hot time and hot topic, and uh, we've just dealt into part of it tonight. So for some of you watching and, uh, that maybe only caught part of it, uh, this will of course be archived on the channel, the YouTube channel for Global Minnesota. Uh, if all works out well with the um, audio and everything, it will be a um, portion of it will be on public radio. Uh, but also uh, for those of you who've uh, asked a couple times in the chat room about getting a copy of that Great Decisions uh, booklet, you can go on the Global Minnesota website and you can order it, it through Global Minnesota. There are also some other materials and there are Global Decisions groups all over the state. And so if you would like more information, just contact uh, Global Minnesota. Tonight's program uh, is part of our uh, public affairs work. We do a lot of different things, hosting and many things, but we have three important uh, programs coming up soon that you might wanna tune in for. Uh, the first is uh, January 25th, it's International Day of Education. We have a big day that'll open with uh, the official program with the United Nations and UNESCO. Uh, the Director General of UNESCO will be with us kicking ours off and she'll be introduced by the governor. Um, we'll have the president or the general secretary of Education International and um, Dr. Uh, Linda uh, Darling-Hammond, who is the lead for the transition for the Biden administration and also for the Obama administration before on education 
and the president of the California School Board uh, will be with us for about an hour talking about the transition. We will be on the other side of the inauguration. Uh, so that whole day we'll be looking at education at all ages, some of the new technologies, what's happening in international education and exchange. So the theme chosen by UNESCO is uh, recover and revitalize education for the COVID-19 generation. And so there'll be lots of different pieces. Coming up after that in February on the 16th at noon, it's our quarterly sustainable development goals roundtable. Been meeting for several years now quarterly. Uh, finding out what's the latest happening in different parts of the state, in different companies, and different agencies and places around meeting those 2030 sustainable development goals. And the next day, February 17th in the evening at 6 p.m. Central Time, uh, part of our global conversations. One of the topics this year uh, in the global decisions is the Arctic. And we'll be hearing from Heather Conley, Senior Vice President uh, for Europe, Eurasia, and Arctic for the CSIS, the CIS, the Center for Strategic and International Studies. We'll be looking at the area of the Arctic and how it fits into the global geopolitics. So again, thank you to our members who make these programs possible. Thank you to those who've taken the occasion tonight to join and to be part of this process. And going back to our wonderful partnership with the Humphrey School, one of my alma maters, thank you. Uh, Mary, and thank you, Molly, and Tom, thank you again for bringing the world to Minnesota, and now you've encouraged and inspired us to go out and get engaged in that world. Have a good evening. Thank you, and see you at the next program. Thank you, Mark. Thanks, everybody.